in research, we are the only ones to have the luxury to take the time to think about the world. I think there's really groundwork to do about making science and scientific insights the property of everybody. Everybody. What I try to do in the classroom is to make you a more critical thinker. If you walk inside the classroom without intending to make an impact, what happens in the classroom? Anne-Laure is engaged on two fronts. As a researcher who studies human behavior, her purpose is to have her work go beyond the realm of scientific journals, to fuel any conversation over coffee, the ultimate dream of the kind of science that is within everyone's reach, useful to all, and that allows us to improve ourselves as individuals, part and parcel of creating a better society. As a professor in a business school who teaches marketing and creativity, her purpose is to guide her students toward the path of critical thinking that will help them to be more conscious about the world and understand how to act. On both fronts, Anne-Laure is committed to bringing down the wall, the wall that limits research to the academic sphere and keeps it away from the general public, the wall that limits our spirit and prevents us from subjecting ourselves and the world around us to a critical examination. Her weapon for doing this? Social and cognitive psychology. Anne-Laure Selye is a researcher and associate professor at HEC Paris. She is our fourth guest on Tomorrow is Our Business, stories of people who choose to have an impact on others' lives. You're listening to Tomorrow is Our Business, Season 1, Engagement. What moves me at an individual level is generally human behaviour. I'm fascinated by uh, the way humans think about the world, about uh, uh, decisions that they make. Uh, I'm intrigued by how they feel about the world and how different their feelings can be uh, in, uh, in an exact same situation, for example. And then obviously I'm fascinated by how they behave. Uh, and as we've seen in the last pandemic, we can see that there's a very large heterogeneity of behavior and so uh, thinking about ways to comprehend better why we do the things we do, why we feel the way that we do, and, and how we can get organized to live together better, uh, that's generally driving me at an individual level. As a citizen, I, just like everybody else, I think, I hope, uh, I am very concerned about what our species is going through. Uh, I'm pretty pessimistic also, I have to say, um, but I try to do my best to uh, work uh, in particular with students uh, that, I, that I have the privilege to teach, to work at carving solutions, uh, however poor or short-termist they might be, uh, that can uh, move us forward in dealing with the environmental crisis. Uh, other than that, as a citizen, uh, the topic of sustainability in general uh, moves me. And by sustainability, I don't only mean the environment, uh, but also, uh, you know, uh, uh, having a, a non-diverse world is not sustainable. Having a world where uh, women uh, get a fraction of what men get for the exact same amount of work is not sustainable. 
uh, and so on and so forth. So I guess I'm, I feel very much a citizen at the exact same level as uh, I see most of my students uh, being nowadays. What, As a professor, I'm pretty much uh, my individual self and a citizen. I, don't, I, I haven't created uh, an avatar in the classroom. You get what you see. You get Anna in the classroom as well. I don't like the word professor because historically it's meant a very vertical position where you say something and people listen to you and apply what you say blindly. Uh, it is exactly not the way I teach. Uh, I see my students as my peers And I see my role as that of a moderator or as that of someone who might help them become conscious uh, of the, the world that surrounds them and make this better decisions, maybe. But it's not that I'm going to reliably teach you to make better decisions. Uh, what I try to do in the classroom is to make you uh, a more critical thinker uh, of the world, a more aware person. Uh, and that, in turn, I hope, given my, my students, I'm, I'm, I have the privilege of having fairly smart students, uh, they do the rest, right? I mean, the, uh, as a colleague recently said, you know, the dirty secret of teaching is you don't, right? You, you just rely on students and you lead the way. So it's more kind of, uh, you know, like a, a hosting a dinner than really a professor. So I don't go by professor. My students call me Anne-Laure. Uh, they never call me professor. Uh, my Asian students have trouble doing so. It takes them a while. Um, but uh, primarily, I see myself as a researcher. And, and that's what I do, you know, maybe 85% of my time is in a lab or writing or analyzing data. It's not teaching. Anne-Laure Selye is professor of marketing at HEC Paris. Yet, if we had simply presented her to you in this way, you would not have been able to fully understand who she truly is or what exactly her nature of work is all about. I am interested in phenomenon that downstream is going to have implications for marketing practice. Okay, so it might look like when I talk about creativity, for instance, so I, I research a lot of creativity. Um, of course, it's going to apply to creatives trying to come up with new products, for instance. So it's going to apply to new product development, which is a marketing uh, task, right? Um, but because we work fairly upstream in research, it does um, happen very often, in fact, uh, that faculty that's affiliated with one department in particular doesn't seem to be tackling directly what the subject matter of this department is. But marketing, you know, the, the other thing that's poorly understood, uh, particularly in Europe, right? Marketing is seen as, you know, dirty, uh, capitalistic pigs uh, uh, trying to make people buy what they don't need. Uh, that's not what marketing is about, right? I mean, that's something our students know uh, in our classes. Marketing is about creating value for individuals, for groups, and for society at large, Right? So, for instance, solving the environmental crisis, that's a marketing task. That is a marketing task. We have to change markets. We have to change consumer behavior to shape it in a way that's uh, going to be sustainable for the long run. So, as you can see, it's, it's not about uh, feeding markets uh, products and services they don't need. Quite the opposite. In previous episodes of Tomorrow is Our Business, Our guests have often spoken about a decisive moment in their lives, that one moment that offers a reason behind the engagement. In Anlaw's case, there is neither a revelation nor an awareness. Instead, there is a form of openness and a constant call to raise questions. I know that's very romantic, uh, the epiphany thing. You know, it's, uh, it's like Archimedes in his bath going like, Eureka, now I know exactly what I want to do. 
Um, I believe a lot more in the, in the chance factor in life. So um, I, I became a social and cognitive psychologist also by chance because I met people who I started to admire and slowly, little by little, uh, I took the direction of, of this uh, profession. And similarly in research, you know, when, when you go after a certain topic rather than another, it's also um, a matter of luck of, of meeting co-authors who inspire you, of asking questions or hearing about questions from other people. Some of uh, the best research questions uh, I've had come from children. Yeah, you have the occasional talk with a five-year-old at the park and you're like, well, that's actually a very good question. You know, we never wonder about these things. So I haven't had one turning point. I have uh, many. I have too many, actually. <laughs> I find there are many turning points. I think we are, um, our generation is living probably one of the most exciting times of the last centuries, if you think about it, because we need to change the world at a pace that is unprecedented. We need to change the world really fast and we have uh, bigger questions to handle than we can handle, uh, at least that we know of, right? So we need to find ways to handle a huge problem in the best way that we can in the least of amount of time uh, as possible. So my turning points vis-a-vis uh, -vis that are moments where I go, ooh, this is really important. And we vastly underestimated how important this thing is. And one example, for instance, is I do a lot of research on time perception in general. And in particular, I look at how much organizing our daily activities by the clock, so looking at your wristwatch, literally, how much that fractions your thinking and how much that hurts you or helps you. It depends on the task, right? But if you think about it, that's really one of the things that we don't put into question. We all wake up in the morning at 7 or 7.30, and we don't even question that. Right? Uh, we show in our research, and we've, we now have like over 12 years of data collected, showing that it's far from neutral to do that. It shapes, for instance, our creative thinking. Our very ability to create is impacted by whether we look at the watch uh, during the day or not, and whether we schedule our activities according to the watch. That's pretty fundamental, right? If you go back 500 years, we didn't create by the watch. Leonardo da Vinci didn't wake up in the morning at 7 to start painting at 8, and he didn't recreate for 15 minutes to smoke a cigarette, right? I mean, uh, outside his office. I mean, that, that didn't happen, right? Um, and, and these things, yeah, they make us laugh. But we, we have carved norms and ways of functioning that we mindlessly apply to everybody, to all professions, without realizing that uh, it can have uh, uh, detrimental effects, uh, actually, on our productivity and our ability to contribute positively to society. Right? So these are so turning points, many, time perception, um, uh, blended working, for instance, working at home rather than at work, something that obviously became extremely clear to many of us a year ago. But I have uh, I've, I've done uh, I've collected data for the past six years about that. Right? When is it good to work from home versus the office? When is it good to be in the office? Right? And if you think of the implications, they are they are colossal. Right? Uh, think just in terms of real estate. Right. One big question of the next few years is just how many offices will be full and do we need to convert how much of the of the office space that we currently have, for instance, in Paris, do we need to convert into something else? And if we convert it into something else, what should it be? 
uh, will people continue to go shopping since we have all moved to internet? So we, our whole relationship to space also changes. So that's pretty fundamental, right? Our whole relationship to time changes, our whole relationship to space changes. So you have these big assumptions underlying our current society and they've been underlying our society for the past 200 years, right? I mean, they go back, if you look at the clock, you, you can go back to the early days of the Industrial Revolution. We have never questioned that the clock could be something poisonous ever since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, right? Think Taylorism, yeah? Gaining time, saving time is always something positive. Well, maybe not. When is it positive? When could, be, could it be toxic? These are the turning points where I go and I stop and I, I stay literally for years looking at these questions because they, they, they are fascinating and, and the implications are, are uh, massive. Turning points. Aspiration to Inspiration is the name of the research chair held by Anne-Laure Cellier and ESCP Business School professor Ben Voyer with Cyril Vigneron, CEO of Maison Cartier. Launched in January 2021, this chair aims to advance research on emerging business and societal challenges, on current turning points such as sustainability, new relations to consumption, or Generation Z behaviours. This chair illustrates Anlaw's vision of research. In research, we are the only ones to uh, have the luxury to take the time to think about the world. If you think about it, Uh, most professionals have to make decisions faster and faster. Um, they need to make recommendations. They need to think about the next best move, but they rarely have the luxury to think, where will we be in 50 years from now? Or why are we doing what we're doing? And we've been doing that for the past 200 years. That's rarely something people think about. Researchers do. So we get obsessed with questions that, you know, often to the rest of society seems nerdy or intellectual or not applied or too fundamental. And you know what? Sometimes it is. So, <laughs> point well taken. Sometimes we look at stuff that's really uh, doesn't seem to have traction after all, right? I mean, that's, we have risky research topics that end up not being that interesting. But then others that end up uh, being uh, really rich in terms of the insights that they provide. So I believe researchers have, have that luxury of thinking. And the other luxury we have is to collect data that no one else does. Uh, you know, uh, I'll give you an illustration talking about the time perception. Uh, I took 100 of my students to do hot yoga, yoga at 40 degrees uh, for an hour and a half. Uh, and I wanted to see what the presence of a clock would have on their yoga practice. Uh, and for half of the students, there was a clock in the yoga studio while they were uh, suffering <laughs> through the postures. And for the other half, there was no clock and there was no way, they had no watch, there was no reminder of time. And we just looked at their performance at yoga. Uh, and the interest of a yoga performance is it's non-algorithmic. It's another way of saying that when we do yoga, we're creative. We're producing, we're trying to do the best with our body and we're finding a, a creative solution of how to hold the posture given our own body. Uh, and that kind of study, there's no one but a researcher that can do this type of work because you have to really think of what am I trying to, to illustrate here? What am I trying to get to? Uh, and that kind of the appreciation is, is, uh, is really uh, the, the landmark of, of our work, I think.
You may wonder why the CEO of one of the most renowned luxury maisons decided to support Enlos Research. Listen to what Cyril Vigneron said during a recent event. One key thing, which is something new, never done, is to make a, a joint share. And uh, not a teaching one, but something more research and research lab, which uh, came from another, uh, another I don't know, uh, views or perception on the world. Is that the, uh, when it comes to the academic world, there's a perception that business is taught to a certain point, but after that, not anymore. So you come to books, which are books of uh, personal experience. So you have those who have been successful who make their own books and the books of recipe. If you want to be successful, do like me, like this and this and this and that. Uh, where in many other areas, there is a constant learning. And if you're medical doctors or if you are in biology, you have to constantly learn. And the fact that the both... Uh, uh, universities, research, hospital, they have to work together. But when it comes to business, when you're done, you consider that only your path is the right thing to follow. Well, we thought, but there is fantastic research team and because universities and business schools have gone more and more to do more precise research on human, human beings, people. Uh, and, uh, and if we put those two together, there is a kind of gap that has to be filled. Because if some think a lot of what and observe what's happening and the others stay aside, probably at some point everyone will be missing something. Missing something linked to practice, meaning something linked to not to theory, but to thinking. So we thought we should uh, orientate to have a view on the world and to bring the academic rigor to observe elements of the world around us which are having immediate issues for us. And uh, the share has started in some way to think and to share about that, what is the world around us, which is a part we are uh, continuously uh, looking, observing, because we call this share turning points. In a way, you see, we are turning points. And we were turning points already before the, uh, the COVID crisis, and the COVID crisis has made a kind of a both distortion of time, deceleration, reacceleration, and coming to something where we don't know exactly what will emerge, but probably will be very different. Also to a point where we have a emerging issues which are really very pressing issues and the societal one as well as the environment one have to be integrated and have to be seen about how brands like us who are doing basically useless things for people who don't need them but are ready to pay a lot of money for uh, how can they come to their aspiration uh, now and, 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 and in the future so this question are not only the pressing one for everything but the pressing one for our, for our se uh, sector Unlock's research intends to question both individual behaviour and corporate practices in order to provide responses to contemporary challenges. Having said that, the impact arising from her work is not just limited to these two areas, but extends to include society as a whole. Indeed, another project also within the framework of the Turning Points Chair caught our attention. This time, it isn't just about getting crazy research insights about human behaviour as she had said, but a linguistic project around sustainability, aiming to enrich the French language with a new word and to overcome the gaps and pitfalls of the French term development durable. It, our intention is not to change the world, as you see. I mean, of course it is downstream, but it's, it's a modest uh, activism uh, that's driven by the belief that, yes, actions start with words. So let's be precise. Researchers, we create words, huh? We create words when we uh, talk about uh, 
climate change. It comes from researchers in the 70s who started talking about climate change and the world was laughing at the time. And it laughed for a long time until they didn't laugh anymore because the data was so astounding, right? So we, we publish words. Um, the words that we create tend to be labeled jargon for a long time because people don't understand it most of the time, which is fine. I'm the first one to think that we, we write terribly poorly. Um, but at some point, yeah, words matter. It matters. It guides actions and behavior and speeches. How do you want to lead a world towards um, improved sustainability if, if you, you don't give exhaustively a, a list of the exhaustive actions that people can take? Right at the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned that Anne-Laure had a dream, that her research is available, accessible and useful for all, and not just confined to fellow researchers, academics and colleagues. Believe it or not, and in spite of herself, she partly realised this dream in 2018 when she wrote and published a book on the influence of first names. This book, re-edited in 2019, threw her under the media spotlight for several months. I didn't mean to write a book. So the, the book I wrote, uh, the first book was Le Pouvoir des Prénoms, The, the Power of First Names. Um, and I wrote that book because an editor asked me to. Uh, because my, I published a scientific article in a, in a scientific journal called Journal of Personality and Social Psychology that no one normally constituted reads. Okay, It's really for researchers. And surprisingly to my co-authors and myself, it landed everywhere in the news. Um, and in the news, we read, we look like our names, uh, our faces bear the tattoo of our names. I mean, it was very anxiety eliciting. And not surprisingly, I found myself, you know, <laughs> recurrently until 2 a.m. Uh, replying to people who emailed me in panic. And so when, when this editor, um, the publishing house approached me, I thought, well, there, I'm going to write a book for everyone, so in plain language, because a scientific article is hard to understand. And I'm going to explain what we found, really, what it means, and why it's not a big deal. It's interesting. It's important, uh, socially speaking, but it's not, it's not anything to worry about. Right? The enthusiasm surrounding this book and the sometimes painful experiences that Anne-Laure had endured when questioned by unscrupulous journalists on various TV and radio shows led us to discuss the compatibility between scientific research, complex thoughts and media coverage. Well, I think we need to protect science. I think science is being very badly treated right now. And uh, if, you, if you look at what happened in the States with the elections, for instance, and all this notion of fake news and, and the way science has been portrayed throughout the pandemic, for instance, right? Uh, studies, uh, do we rely on this study? Ooh, this study that was published was actually a bad study. How come? Um, I think there is uh, e either we need to protect science the way it was protected even 20 years ago because it didn't land in the news that fast, right? I mean, before science would be talked about, it would be discussed at length among experts, it's no longer the case. So you see, our research was published, and the day after, it was front page of the New York Times, right? That's the problem, right? You, it's too early. So either we, we need to protect uh, science, or we need to educate people. And we should do both. 
I think. Uh, and that's my attempt with this book, because, I mean, I could have approached, you know, there are, you know, uh, uh, publishing houses that publish researchers, but generally those books are read by a certain upper class society that's very well educated, etc., etc. I think there's really groundwork to do about making science and scientific insights the property of everybody, everybody. And especially so, you know, maybe in, in astrophysics, that's harder than in psychology. But I find it completely abnormal that uh, people wouldn't know about results in psychology, for instance, about the influence of first names, right? I mean, that was, a, I think everyone should be informed about that, right? We're all going to name our kids, or maybe if we don't have kids, we're going to give our opinion about the names of other kids. And we need to understand what, uh, how much it influences and shapes uh, one's, uh, one's uh, trajectory in life uh, before we do that. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's basic knowledge. So my, my dream with this book was to write something that someone writing the air at night after a long, way at, uh, a long day at work, it would be effortless, very easy to read, like taking coffee together. If I publish a book in French, it's so that, you know, you're at Gare de Lyon, you're hopping on a train, you're like, what could I read that could teach me a few things, yeah, where I could learn stuff in a way that's non-tiring, that's funky, and that helps me better gauge the world around me, yeah? That's the spirit. I lived in the U.S., for a long time. And I have to say one thing I really appreciate about the US culture, and I don't see as much in France, is people read all the time about science, about literature, about discoveries. There's so much curiosity in the general population. I'm not saying every American reads, but Americans read who are not at all in these fields, right? They are curious. And I don't see this curiosity in France as much. Uh, I, I, there's a certain, you know, elitist way of dealing with research that I simply do not understand. It's worse than not understanding. I think it's dangerous because uh, the, the elite is shrinking. Yeah, and we, I, want, I would like to be in a country where everybody reads, right? And you can sit on a bench and meet someone and have a conversation about pretty much anything, right? Uh, and especially given names, I would think it's very inappropriate to leave it to a select few when it is a topic that literally affects everybody. Everybody who has a first name uh, should know what, uh, what this book details. That's, uh, it should be common uh, knowledge. This should be among your list of resolutions of the month. Go to one of your favorite bookstores and browse through the shelves in the social psychology and cognitive sciences section. I hope that Anlo's convictions have in turn convinced you. Let's now discuss with Anlo about her teaching approach. Once again, you'll find her methods completely stimulating, even though she may sometimes be a little unsettling for her students. At the most general level, I noticed that students I get in business schools, so I, I taught at the London Business School. I started my career in London. Then I moved to New York University. I briefly taught at Columbia University as well and then back to HEC Paris. And what's lovely is you get very smart students, very well-read, very uh, intellectually curious people, eager to contribute positively to the world, particularly this generation. 
Um, what I also notice is there are people who were raised in the best curriculum possible. And that best curriculum, whether it's in the States or in England or, or France, share one thing, which is you have very well-educated people, but they've never questioned the very foundations of their education. And so they have a worldview that is very complete, but they've never questioned it. And so it's interesting. So what I try to do is in my classes is to literally take their head and put it upside down, if it makes sense. So I tried, I tried through provocation to have them realize how they think about the world and how poor it is. Uh, and I'm sorry to say that because they are very smart people. But, um, you know, the, the minute you get out of a business school in particular, you're not about reading or passing an exam or speaking a language very well anymore. You're about acting to change the world. That's a very different task. And you're going to be thinking while acting. That's also very different from what you've done during your schooling, where you studied and then you took an exam and there was no noise around you. Yeah, You're going to be making decisions with others, not alone. So you're going to have to compose with other people. That's also something they don't know how to do. So I try to have them realize how they think, not what they think about, but how they think and to uh, criticize that and to think differently, to learn to think more flexibly, if you will. Uh, I teach a course in creativity. That's exactly that, right? I mean, it's, uh, you, you have one problem. There's one, I know you can think about it pretty nicely right now. You're smart, you're well-trained, but I want you to identify another 10 solutions, not just one, another 10 solutions, so that if your one best solution that you naturally come up with doesn't work out for whatever reason, then you have the nine others that you can work on, right? It's a very different way of tackling the world. Uh, and I would say across the universities where I've been, that's my focus. More than the content, I don't teach grids or whatever. We look at business problems and it's about identifying the problems. That's something they're not very good at doing, yeah? The real problem, because there's... The problem you see, and then there's the problem that's really causing the problems you see. So identifying that and acting in a way that the one thing you do solves most of the problem. Not a tiny bit, but most of the problem. Sorry, now someone is calling. While Anne-Laure answers her phone call, let's go meet two of her students. The first one is Liz Miller, 2020 HEC Paris MBA graduate who specialized in marketing. The second student, Mathieu Lamotte, graduated from HEC Paris almost 10 years ago. A qualified engineer, he had joined the Master in Entrepreneurship program in which Anne-Laure also teaches. So hearing Anne-Laure's words about how she teaches really uh, brought everything together for me from the perspective as a student because in class she was really, she really pushed her students to go beyond what was obvious. So when we would do a, a case study, for example, you know, there's usually the obvious issue going on, but she would push us to look deeper at what could be causing that or what could be the deeper issue that, that maybe we, we didn't notice right away. On an individual level, I, I really felt her pushing us to, to look beyond and to, to be more creative and in our thinking and 
and not to just look at on the surface level. I would say that she's pushing us first, uh, but on, on a good way. I mean, um, like try to bring us out of our comfort zone because, you know, after uh, years of studies in, in, in engineering and business schools, you know, you're very in your uh, comfort zone and, and she tries to put us in, 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 in places that we are not used to. And the last thing uh, I would say, it's uh, real cases. Build a tower of, of spaghettis together and, and make you realize that uh, actually it's not adults uh, or even engineers that are going to be the best at that. It's children because they are not format to some specific rules or thinking. And yeah, so, so, so real cases bring uh, to the explanation of creativity and something which is, yeah, could, could seem quite quite obscure, especially for, for people uh, like, like us, like engineers, uh, very, very formatted uh, brain, I would say. Even today, I mean, if I talk about creativity, uh, I'm still applying some concept I've seen with, with her nearly 10 years ago now. Last week, we had brainstorming session about uh, finding a new name for, um, for one of uh, our products. And uh, I was, okay, how to be creative on this? Because it's, I mean, the, the, you have as many words as you can see in the world. So I tried to apply some of Anlo's ideas of, okay, put rules and you'll be more creative. So I tried to say, okay, let's try to find a word with five letters or let's try to find a word that is going to start with the letter I or uh, I mean many different things and try to to then build something out of that and be creative out of it. So now I really apply it, or I won't say every day, but very quite often. A course on creativity? I would love to be creative too. Anne-Laure, tell us this. How do you teach creativity? So I don't teach creativity. Uh, as I told you in the very beginning, I don't teach. That doesn't exist. Uh, and if I taught creativity and I made you reliably more creative in like 18 hours, believe me, I would have a private island in the Pacific and you wouldn't know me. Obviously, I don't turn you reliably into a creative genius in 18 hours. But in 18 hours, you can... Uh, so once again, you can increase the cognitive flexibility. So just through making people realize how they think about the world in predictable ways, you shake that, if you will, and they realize they can think of one and the same situation differently. And that's just perspective taking, we can say. So it's, it's easy to understand when I describe it, but when you do it, there's nothing like it. Right? And, and, and students sometimes painfully realize how they think about the world. It's really interesting to see it happen in the classroom. We have a very intimate atmosphere, uh, very protective also. So everything that happens in the classroom stays in the classroom. So, you know, this is the kind of class that is not taped. Uh, we don't have people auditing the class. Uh, we don't have the director of HSC coming in to see how the class is going. That's like forbidden. We close the doors. And, and we just look, we observe ourselves thinking uh, about problems uh, and, and situations and crisis situations in particular. So that's fun. Uh, and then, you know, we, we know, um, if you will, the way I talk about creativity is like a big iceberg, right, that we know almost nothing about in science. We're beginning to know a few things reliably, though. So you, you have to think of the tip of the iceberg, Yeah, so we begin, we're beginning to uh, be able to talk about uh, insights we have about the creative process that if you apply those insights to your life, you're going to get creative gains. I mean, that's mechanical. We closed the doors and we observed ourselves thinking. 
Matthew still remembers very well this atmosphere in Anlos class that stimulates students' creativity. I would say one real thing that I, when I wrote, I, I have about this is uh, one day she asked us, okay, take a piece of paper, a pen, and write down a poem uh, without the letter E. Um, but for this one, you just use pen and paper. You, you are not going to be assessed. No one is going to read it apart from, from Anlo. Uh, and then the, the, the thing is going to be burned or distracted afterwards. So it's just between her and us, or in this case, me. And I really, really like this one because I'm not a writer. I'm more, yeah, as I said, uh, engineer brain. But doing this exercise, knowing that no one is going to mock you, no one is going to judge you on the things that you are going to do, but just try to express yourself and, and create something was just, yeah, really amazing. And I really liked that, uh, you know, being, being um, pushed uh, really outside of, of uh, my comfort zone. So we work on that with entrepreneurs, for instance, because entrepreneurs, not only do they need to create, but they need to create fast. Again, we're Twitter generation. Yeah, you get asked to have new ideas, you know, take the haute couture industry, right? They used to have two collections a year, they need six now. So it's not the creativity of Leonardo da Vinci again. Huh? It's not 15 paintings in a lifetime that you're asked to do. You're asked to be creative continuously. Right? And that, that's something you need to prepare yourself for. And we try to. I mean, again, I don't pretend to, uh, to control creativity. Of course not, right? But there are a few things, a few, um, you know, misconceptions, idées reçues, that you can definitely kick in the butt um, nowadays. And that's what we do in our classes. You have heard about these different learning situations that students have gone through, situations that carry the hallmark of Anlo's passion and dedication in her teaching. But we still asked Anlo, does she consider herself an engaged professor? Certainly. I don't know how you can enter a classroom without intending to make an impact. That sounds very sad to me. I mean, if you, if you walk inside a classroom without intending to make an impact, what happens in the classroom? That would be my question. You know, and increasingly so, because if you think of the many ways that students can learn today, they can go online, they can go on YouTube. I mean, I learned so much from the internet. And books, I just read books, you know, there are very good books. So if you think of what motivates a student to move their butt to uh, the top of the hill at HEC uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning, come to a class? Well, if it's not because they hope to fundamentally change, be changed, be challenged by a professor and other people in the room, I mean, if the professor sir, thinks they, they have no role, no active role in this, I, it, it sounds very depressing to me. I'm sorry. I, I, I just, I, I couldn't possibly do that. I wouldn't know how to do that. Do you remember what the Socratic method is about? Here's a little philosophical opening by way of concluding this podcast. I don't like of, to think of myself as having a mission. I think it's a very heavy word uh, for what I try to do. Um, I, I, like to, I like to help people. Um, 
better realize their dreams. I mean, one, one common point we have among our students is they are trying to understand what they want out of life and what impact they want to have on the world. And so to, to me, you know, it's, uh, our role is more that of, uh, you know, Socratic uh, uh, moderator where we, we ask them, we help them understand better um, how, how they can act out there. Um, and that's my role as a professor, as a researcher. I try to, again, put words on reality and, and maybe draw attention to topics that are undervalued in the news uh, and try to, to, to slap it out there and see whether it makes people react, whether it's, you know, the influence of given names, uh, time perception, uh, uh, the fact that, yes, we can teach creativity. Those are ideas that I can tell you uh, it's going to take us at least 20 years to convince uh, a minority of people you can teach creativity. It's not, it doesn't happen overnight, right? Um, and as a woman, as a woman, I, of course, uh, encourage uh, diversity generally. I work uh, actively at uh, empowering women in particular and uh, non-Caucasian people uh, to come up for jobs in STEM careers, in scientific and tech uh, careers. And I'm uh, very happy to actively encourage students who do fit uh, those profiles to come back on campus and, and talk to our current students uh, because that's another change that I hope is, is going to happen. Again, it, it, it goes back to our discussion on sustainability. If we want a sustainable world, it's not just about the climate. Uh, so many other things have to change as well. This podcast was brought to you by HEC Paris Business School. Tune in to all the episodes of Tomorrow is Our Business on your favourite podcast platforms or find them on our website hec.edu.